Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity to drive your career forward. My guest today, Bracket Darrell, is the CEO of Logitech, a world leader in new and innovative products that connect people via digital experiences. I got one right now that I'm staring at. And he joined Logitech back in 2012 and has helped completely revitalize the brand that once created PC accessories. Now, Logitech makes products that enhance our ability to connect over multiple digital platforms. And we'll get into the pandemic about business and all that, how you know the digital world has evolved. And he has a ton of experience leading landmark companies like Procter & Gamble, General Electric, and Whirlpool, to name a few. And Braun, let's not forget about Braun. And each unique experience with different brands in different markets has made him an expert in running and growing world-class brands. So let's dig into it. I am thrilled and excited to have him here today. Bracken, welcome to the podcast. Adam, thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And I deeply appreciate you for making the time. So as I mentioned in the, in the, in the conversation we're having before, this show is really about you know, unpacking my guest career journeys. And you've had a fantastic uh, and long-tenured career. Um, but let's bring it all the way back. Let's bring it back to your, you know, your, your undergrad days. Yeah, you have a bachelor's degree in English um, before getting your MBA at Harvard. What advantage do you believe that that liberal arts background gives you now as in a chief executive officer? Well, yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I think about that a lot. You know, I've always tried to figure that out. There are two things in my life that I've, I keep trying to go back to and figure out why they seem so important to me. One of them is the fact that I was a liberal arts major, an English major. And the other one is the fact that I'm a basketball fanatic. And, uh, and I'm not sure I really know the truth about either one, but I'll try. On the English major, I'd say, you know, when I went to college, I was always better at math. You know, it was like hmm. my strength. And so I knew I wanted to do leadership as a career of some kind. So I decided I better be better in writing and speaking than I was. And so that's explicitly why I did it. And, I, and I, I've never regretted that for a second. And I became an accountant right out of school. So it didn't hurt me on the math side too much. And, and um, anyway, I'd say that it's helped me in a couple ways. One is that I'm, I'm definitely more articulate than I would have been, for sure. But I think anybody can get that just by reading a lot and listening to people uh, and practicing speaking. And then the second one is... Um, you know, I think there's a, an element of maybe uh, creativity. Not, be, It hasn't made me more creative. It's made me a little less afraid to make mistakes. Interesting. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm more full of errors, but therefore a little less afraid to try things. And that's an interesting concept, just to pause on for a second there. The, the, um, the lack of fear, not to say that fear of failure, but being more open to taking risk and, and taking chances and establishing that earlier on. Cause I think that's a big fear for a lot of folks coming out of school, especially into the workforce, right? The fear to fear, the fail, the fear, fear to fail and, and, and to take a chance there. But let's, let's double back to basketball for a second there. Who's your team? Who's your pro team? 
Well, I'm, I'm less of a, it's the Warriors, but I'm less of a basketball watcher and more of a basketball player. I still play, you know, very hard. You know, I love it. Yeah. I grew up playing. I started playing when I was about, you know, 10, nine or 10 or something, and I've never stopped. So I'm just, I have a game in my back, my backyard, which is a half court game right now, which Perfect. has everything from former NBA players to former pro football players to, you know, yo-hums like me who, you know, don't belong <laughs> to court with those people. Luckily, we balance each other out. So yeah, it's been super fun. Who who is your icons growing up? Who are your role models? Basketball. Uh, well, you know Michael Jordan. I mean, he's about the same age I am, but but Michael Jordan was obviously the the phenom. Magic. You know, you couldn't help but admire Magic. I, I especially admired Magic when after he got HIV and when he came, went public with it. I think about how many millions of people's lives he saved just by going public and having them be you know tested and and, uh, and get on ARV programs or diet programs, or whatever. Of course, you know, I, I think he was he's a superhero and. And uh, so I've got a lot of a lot of heroes from the past, going all the way back to Dr. J. For those of you who are old enough to even know who that is, but. I think some people. Will, um, who's who's one of who's one of the great players recently that you've actually had the opportunity to play with? Uh, I've never played. Well, I, I yeah. do play great players. I play with uh, Mustafa Shaker, who played with Iguodala. He was the number one point guard in the country, a senior in high school. And uh, and then I play with. He played a little bit in the NBA. I play with. Uh, a guy named Bryant Barr, who is Steph Curry's uh, two or three, you know, guard, and so I play with them. So I would well, play with them. I, I I'm on the same court they are. They're playing. A different <laughs> You're playing next to them. You're yeah, playing. yeah, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> so, but that's about it. Yeah. No, I, I I love that, and 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 let's take it back. You know, uh, PepsiCo Arthur Arthur Anderson. For those that don't know Arthur Anderson, um, what was your specialization when you're in the consulting world that really, um, you know, help you to to succeed to the top of these brands? Well, I, when I, when I was in, uh, I wasn't. It was I was, actually wasn't in consulting. I was in audit, and in the audit world, I was doing. The first year, I did just classic audits, and the second year, I did, did kind of a range of stuff, kind of new product development, strategy stuff. You know, some of the things that we probably shouldn't have been doing, and that's why Arthur Anderson no longer exists. It was a conflict of interest, but uh, but but yeah, but I had an amazing experience there, and I was I was really terrible at uh, at the detailed task of doing anything in a very very you know pedantic you know really really supervisory focused way so is I, it the I, opposite of audit though is it that the job is an auditor yeah i mean and i was, <laughs> I was the least likely person ever to do audit not only because i was an english major also because i just wasn't that detail oriented i mean i was notoriously uh out of control when it came to organization with my papers and they were just everywhere so when i went to arthur Anderson, i just had to focus on that and make it ha- make it work and i did and i'd say that was a great experience for me and i never regret that for a minute are you better at the details now, or is that something you've learned to uh, outsource? You know, I would say I'm really good at details when I care about them, and terrible when they're kind of on the on the on the peripherals of of what's going on. So, so well, yeah, I'd say I'm still just as bad as ever in some cases, and really good in others. Well, that's an interesting point too. I mean, do you feel like you fully embrace the concept that we we're talking about Gary Vee, how I connected with you through Gary Vee? Like Gary Vee told me the most important advice to me professionally, stop focusing on the things that you suck at and double down on your strengths. I mean, is that what you did early on? Uh, no, I, I'd say I did not do that. I often tried really hard to work on things I wasn't very good at and I made very little progress. So I think Gary Vee's advice to you was really good. Um, I will say the only, my only, um, I guess, watch out on that advice is I think that could lead you to a narrower and narrower life, you know, because if you just continue to focus on things you're really good at and people begin to come to you for those too. And eventually you become like the, the things you're good at is, are you. 
and you end up with fewer ex new experiences, you know, and fewer challenging experiences. And, you know, your brain is like a, is a, like a muscle, you know, if, if you stop using your left arm when you're 20 and your right arm when you're 30 and your left leg when you're 40 and your other leg when you're 50, guess what? You don't have a really good life. And I, and I think that's kind of what we do to ourselves if we're not careful. It's, it's an interesting point. Well, I'm going I'm to give the counterpoint on that one. So following that advice on doubling down on the things that I'm good at led me to what I'm doing right now with podcasting. Right. Doubling down on the fact that I'm able to establish, build relationships, I've taken it to the level of putting myself out of my comfort zone, having stronger, deeper, more meaningful conversations with folks like yourself and doing this on the fly, awesome. being able to improvise. And, and, and that's where our, you know, I've taken that. And of course, there are certain things where maybe I'm not good at where I should be good at if we're talking about you know, running a business, the BD side of it, the P&L, the things as a business owner that I'm learning to do. So there's certainly you know, you know, a balance to that. Um, what do you think was one of the, those key takeaways? If you look at, like, let's say, the first 10, 15 years of your career as you're climbing the ladder and you move your way into Procter & Gamble, what was one of those? Well, I'll put it this way, Bracken. What was one of those? Did you have a fall on your face moment? Yeah, I had, I've had so many fall on my face moments. I've spent more time on my face than most people spend on the other end of you. <laughs> um, so I've had many. And I think the, the maybe the biggest learning I had during that period was that you know you're just you're just so so certainly going to make errors and mistakes and things are going to go wrong and things aren't going to work that you should stop thinking about those as failing you should just think about them as learning events and so I've kind of tried to take failure out of my vocabulary I just really try to think of it as learning events and of course you need to risk manage them because if you you know if you fail you know on the most of the things I fail at every day it's fine you just learn from them and move on try not to do it again if you fail, you know, walking on the third floor of a building on the ledge, you know, it just doesn't end well and, and you don't have a second chance. So you've got to make sure you risk manage the failures. But other than that, stop thinking of them as failures. Just start thinking of them as learning events. Try to fail on a small scale where you can and learn as much as you can. That's that's tremendous advice. So moving on to Procter & Gamble, um, what was one of those really true memorable initiatives that you, you would hang your hat on? Well, I mean, the biggest one, the biggest one for me was Old Spice. You know, I, I, I moved on to Old Spice about three or four years after they bought it and they'd made a series of changes and they, none of them really worked. And so the brand was just getting smaller and smaller. We got to the point where I think we were, I was focused on the deodorant, which was what they bought it for. And I think our share got down to 2.4% of the category, which means you're, you're not there. And, and, and it, was, so, it was your father's deodorant, right? I mean, everyone viewed it yeah. as old, old man smell deodorant. Yeah, and they tried everything. They tried the new whistling sailor, sailor, you know, youth, younger version. But um, I, because uh, they were at the point where I think they were ready to almost deep six it, and I had a new boss, and I was left alone for a little bit where I got to kind of decide what I thought I needed to turn it around. So I, I changed a whole bunch of things at once because it seemed like they all needed to be changed: the product, the packaging, the pricing, the, the brand, and and uh, and we so and the marketing, and we changed them all. And it took very, it was very difficult to get the the upper levels of, of P&G to agree to all those changes at once. But thanks to Susan Arnold and Mike Weggie to my, my, Susan was my boss most of that time. She was really amazing. And Mike was part of it. You know, we got them all done and the results were amazing. And we doubled and then doubled again. And I'd say that, that gave me so much confidence about uh, what I could do if I, if I really let, had the chance to do it. And then the second thing it gave me, uh, made me feel so strongly about, you know, that don't rely on single variable changes. You know, you know, the, the world doesn't work that way. Things rarely, really, if you change one thing, you rarely see the effect that you expect. Trem tremendous insight there. And I appreciate you pulling back the curtain there. So let me ask you, I mean, from, from, from the learnings there at that level of your career and, and just a level set there, what, what was your title at the time? 
I was brand manager, senior brand manager, something like that. Okay. For so, se- so senior brand manager, looking back now from your perspective uh, in the C-suite, what advice would you give to a current senior brand manager to best influence executive management? What's the best way to tell your story compellingly and to influence change? What's the best way to to perform? Right, to perform right. I mean, if you're if you if you're if you're a brand manager right now, if one of your brand managers right now, and they're presenting to you a big initiative, they're saying how they're going to revitalize a piece of technology that's been stagnant. I'm just giving an example there. What is, what is the best approach for them to really influence your decision as a chief you know, executive officer? Number one, two, and three is get really close to a, a one customer. You know, a customer, the customer. You know, get really, really close to them. It's, like, it's a cliche, but it's so true, you know, because, you know, you no matter how much you think you are the customer, you're not. And usually you're not all of them. And, and even if you are, it helps to hear from somebody else. So that's the first one. Then the second one is um, don't go for minor changes. You know, be bold. You can test big, bold, terrifying changes on a small, safe scale. So do that because, you know, small changes don't usually work. And that's why the comment I made about multivariable changes work better. That's just because they're usually bolder and they're more integrated. So be bold. Take the take the big risk. If you need to do it on a smaller scale, I did both, by the way, to go back to your earlier question. I, I did this big, bold set of changes that I managed to, that worked on Old Spice. And it was very successful. I then inherited a big, bold move on Ivory about two years later. There was a disaster and I didn't stop the disaster in progress. It was a car crash <laughs> slowly happening. So I experienced them both. You know, it was a great learning. You know, on the one, I, I really went in and owned it. The other one, I went in and, you know, kind of shepherded something somebody else had owned. And boy, that, boy was that a mistake. So own it all the time. Own it. And, and I think ownership is a big one. Um, one my, my thesis is own your loss, own your career losses, own your professional losses, take ownership, have accountability for it, you know, accept it, learn from it and, and move forward and stop putting blame on, on other people. And I think others recognize it when you do that, that you're taking you know, accountability. You know, somebody said to me yesterday, actually Sam Harnett said to me yesterday, uh, she said, she quoted somebody who told her, gave her advice one time, speaking and not being heard is the same thing as not speaking. And it's such a powerful comment. And I and I think I was speaking and not being heard back when I was on my ivory days. And I will, I, you know, it was a great lesson. I will never do that again. If you're speaking, you're not heard, you just find another way to say it. And if you can't, still aren't being heard, do it yourself. <laughs> That's sound, that's sound advice there. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your time at Braun, um, working overseas, a German German based company. What's what's different about lead? You know, what is one of those core differences of, of leading a uh, European based company versus in the states? Well, I you know I I'd say one of, one of the just kind of technical differences. I remember my first day in the office. I had one of my first meetings that I scheduled. I was about five minutes late. When I got there, the meeting was already happening. <laughs> it was my meeting. You know, in there, Germany, there, there's no professional courtesy five minute kind of leeway. Oh, there's no professor five or 10 minute rule or 15. It's just not, you know, no, I, I would say the biggest difference is you just, you end up getting a, a good slice of how different cultures are, you know, and it's so healthy to know that. And once you, once you get, I work so much internationally now, once I realized how different cultures were, I came back here and then you start to see all the differences here, even more, even though you don't realize it, you know, you start to think, so I, I think this. people are all different, you know, we're all in one and it starts at the, it, it aggregates into cultural levels like a country, but. But if it goes all the way down to one or under diversity, equity, inclusion, which we are, we've all been, at least I've been totally under, under well, thought I was doing well, was really underwhelming it for so long. And now I've really tried to turn that around. I've got a long way to go, but I'm getting better. 
Interesting. So, so where where you are now, and 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 being super tactical and mindful, and top of top of of priorities as far as DEI in your current company, are the things that you look at from your experience, you know, leading overseas companies as far as different cultures and ensuring that everyone's heard and seen and has a seat at the table. Yeah, you know, especially you know, I'll give you a really you know interesting example. You know, like it's so often that somebody's second English is somebody's second language, and you're in a meeting and. And they don't talk much, or when they speak up, they're a little too blunt when they come into the discussion, and people are kind of recoil away from what they said. And you know, it used to be I would I would do like most people do and say, "Oh man, that person's too blunt," or "Oh, you know, why is that person so shy?" And I try Maybe to call introverted. But then you realize, you know what? This is my problem, not their problem. I need to be, you know, if I'm leading the meeting, I need to draw them out because in, so many. I mean, it's a privilege if you're in an, an English-speaking country, you speak, a company, and you speak English. If you're, if you've got, you want to get the most out of people and help them be engaged, you want to really reach out to them. So I'm so much more tolerant and encouraging and actually enthusiastic when I have people who, who English is their second language or their third language or something. And I definitely learned that internationally. And, and uh, now I think it's not just true about language. It's true about everything. You know, a person comes in with a completely different background than you have often feels they, uh, they, they might feel the imposter syndrome. They might feel, not feel like they belong. They might feel, feel like you want them there. And so you need to, you need to work harder there to make sure that they feel all those things. And I, I learned that then. And powerful. I, it, it's reinforced all the time. Yeah, that's, that's super foul, powerful. So, so going down your, this is your life uh, segment here of the podcast, you know, we're talking about your time, your time during Whirlpool during the 2008 financial crisis. What were some of those similarities from a crisis standpoint to, to now during the pandemic? And, and what did you learn about leadership and management that you're applying now? You know, I think uh, the, 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 the Chinese, you know, the Chinese word for crisis, uh, we probably all heard it before as a combination of opportunities. It's, it's opportunity, you know, it's really an opportunity. And I think crisis, it's scary, but it's an opportunity. And I think, you know, every crisis I've been on in the other side of it was amazing. When we came into this crisis, um, we came into the, the 2008 crisis, it, you know, I, I was in the middle of it and uh, uh, kind of just in the middle of it when I, when I joined Whirlpool, you know, I think it was just flat out scary. You know, it was like control everything, control your cash. This time when I came into it, I was talking to Philippe Dupali, who works with me and I was explaining my view this time. I said, as we went into the pandemic in, in March, in mid-March, I, I told him, I said, you know, I, look, we're going to conserve cash. We're going to do all the things you need to do. Our sales are dropping through the floor like everybody else's. But but now we're going to use this moment. And when we come out of this crisis, we're going we're gonna to be on fire. And he said, yeah, I get it. It's like a race car driver. When they come into the curve, they break slightly. But then in the curve, they actually hit the accelerator. And when they come out of the curve, they're flying. And and I love that analogy. It's exactly how we try to do during the pandemic, you know, and it's been super exciting and we've transformed so much during the pandemic that it's uh, we're a different company. Yeah. I mean, let's just jump into that right now. I mean, I'm skipping a few steps here, but I think this is important too. I mean, everybody went remote. Yeah. Everybody went remote and I can only assume how, how, how business took off there. But were, were you able to keep up with supply, able to keep up with the demand? Yeah. You know, like one of the things we did there was it was about, I don't remember the month now. It was just shortly after we all went remote. Um, I remember sitting in my car on the phone with, uh, with my head of operations and, and then this followed quickly with my CFO. And I said, you know, the sales are going through the floor. Everybody's super scared, you know, and, and everyone wants to cut everything back. And, but I just have a, I, you know, I've been in this job now for nine years. I have this feeling that it's going to take off and we need to, we need to bet. We need to decide whether we make a big bet or not. And, and I want to make a big bet. And he said, I feel the same way. 
And so I then called my head of my CFO and then we made a big inventory bet right in the middle of the worst of it period. And then we just kept doubling down on that bet and that enabled us to grow 74% for the year. And we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't been, had the, had the, you know, the intuition to go for it and, and known that we'd be okay if it didn't work out. You know, about hate when people say they bet the company bet, it wasn't a bet the company bet. It was a, it was a bet that we could risk manage and, and but it was a big bet. Where, where do you go inside as a leader internally when you're, when you're, ready to make those decisions when you have to make those decisions where do you go inside what kind of place is that well i go first outside you know i go first to i'm not a person who loves big meetings you know in fact i think big i think a meeting a meeting meeting uh meeting effectiveness is inversely proportional to the number of people in the meeting so big meetings are just a, right on you know they're good for communication that's about it so i go one-on-one usually or one-on-two with a few of the people that i'm closest to that are relevant to the question at hand and and so I do that first, and then I'm I'm a very intuitive person, you know. So I re- really rely on my intuition, and uh, I think most people's intuition is pretty good. It's flawed, as we know. But it's, you know, thinking fast and slow, my Kahneman will tell you that. But it's also right in so many ways, and you have to be wary of your intuition, but you also have to listen hard to it, and then challenge it, and then go for it. And that's exactly what I do. Well, what do you think is uh, some of the big aha moments? that you're taking away from the growth period, you know, during the pandemic, some of the technology that you might've developed, uh, maybe organizational innovations and developments, silver linings as we like to call them. Yeah. I, I would say, Oh, let me talk about the dark clouds. You know, it's always Let's, it's please. silver linings. You know, I, I, in, in many ways, as much fun as last year was, it was a bummer because we were, we were scrambling to fulfill demand most of the time rather than, uh, at least what people could see on the outside rather than, than really innovating to, to, to create consumer value. We were chasing the value that was being created by the pandemic in many ways. Now, we had grown double digits for the last you know, five years before that, so it wasn't a, a new thing that we were out there trying to create uh, things for, for consumers that people would love. But you know, I would say in so many ways, last year was a bit of a distraction for that because there were so many people preoccupied by trying to get parts and trying to get alternative suppliers and, uh, and get more supply. And, so I, I would say my learning was, man, we really, I think we did a pretty good job of keeping our eye on the innovation ball during it and, and our strategy and having our strategies expand to, this, to the new opportunities that we had. And that was really because, you know, we were aware that, that this can be a big distraction. You know, you know, growth, great growth is not always good. It can really run you off a cliff, you know, and, and I, I knew that and I didn't want to have that happen. I, I was super excited about setting a platform and a table for the next decade and and I think we've done that. And I, you won't see it now for the next year or two, probably. But I think it's really, really exciting to have gone through it and not been knocked off course by this a wonderful period. I love it. I love that insight. So powerful. Um, where do you think the the next great innovation for your company is going to be in what direction? Well, we're, we redefined the purpose of our company, which was we used to say we were here to you know extend human capability or, or help people enjoy, you know, uh, enjoy life more or have a bigger impact on the world. We redefined it to, we, we are here to enable all people to fulfill their passions in a way that's good for the planet. And that, that's a bold think, statement. That's a broad, bold statement. Yeah. And I, I'd say, you know, purpose statements for companies that have been around a while is a little bit like sculpting. You just keep carving away stuff and you finally get to the nugget. I think we're there at least for the next five or 10 years. And what that, what that's all, the, the two most interesting things in there are the all part, which is all people enabling all people with diverse, you know, equity, inclusion, those are super critical. And the other one is good for the planet. 
So we're su- I'm super excited about what we're doing in both fronts. And you know, on the planet side, we just announced we're going to be uh, car- we're, we're carbon neutral this year. You know, we're one of the very few tech companies that are now carbon neutral, especially hardware companies. And we're also going to be car- climate positive or, or carbon negative by 2030. So we're really stepping way out on this and we're, and we're super, we're carbon labeling every product now. So you can look at it like calories and we hope other companies will do the same thing. We're, we're, uh, we're planting trees all over, all over Asia now, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, China. Giving back, truly giving back. Yeah. We're really into this. And, and on the DEI front, I'm, um, as excited or more. I mean, I think, yeah, let's, yeah. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. It's, it's more, it's more than a buzzword. So that, that's a, that's a, that's a heavy, it's a, he- it's a heavy piece for any senior leader to, to hold on to and unpack and actually put into practice. And it's a shame that it just had to rise to the top, you know, bubble up to the top in the last couple of years of what's happening in this country and the world with inequalities uh, and all the tragedies we've seen in this country. But as, as a leader, how, how do you synthesize it and, and, and really, truly put it into action and not just a buzzword? Well, I think it starts with being honest with yourself and then everybody around you. You know, I grew up thinking I was a, a good guy you know, like a really good guy on this diversity, equity, inclusion front. You know, my, my parents were super progressive on this. And, you know, they, they, and, and I grew up feeling that way, having friends from all, all of the underrepresented groups, you know, really. And then when George Floyd happened about three or four days after it happened, I was sitting at my uh, kitchen table thinking, God, how in the world did we get here? You know, that, that this is still happening today. And then I thought, then I thought about apartheid in South Africa and I thought, God, why didn't those white business leaders step forward? And then I thought, wait a minute, I haven't used my platform at all and when it comes to black people and Black Lives Matters and all these atrocities. And I thought, we're sitting in American apartheid and we're not even talking about it that way. And so that's the moment, you know, honestly, that was like a life-changing moment for me. Maybe the most transformative event in my life. And, wow. And I and I I immediately, you know, wrote a started writing stuff down and getting it out there on LinkedIn so that I could use my platform that I have the privilege of having. And then I, I, we really redefined what we're doing as a company, both from a strategy metrics, everything. And we're off and running. We've got a long way to go, but we're, we're going to get somewhere meaningful fast and, uh, and the whole company's engaged and I'm super excited about it. And I've changed everything in my personal life too. I mean, I, I used to do angel investing, you know, and just a, whoever came to me, then I turned the tables. I mean, I, now I reach out to, and I, you know, most of my angel investments have been to underrepresented groups in the last year. So I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm Take, super, taking, super taking action. What was, what was the hardest moment of looking in the corporate mirror and saying, we need to change this immediately at Logitech? As well, much as I you feel like sharing. I'll share anything. I, I don't, I don't think the hardest thing was the corporate mirror. The hardest thing was the personal mirror. You know, corporations just to roll up with, with the people in it, and the, and and you, at, if you're sitting at the top of it, you own it. You absolutely own it. Nobody can impact it like you. And and to and to face into the fact that I hadn't, I had been, I had taken my leadership team from two women to you know 45 percent women or 40 percent women over over a nine year period. So I was kind of proud of myself. And then when I realized how little I'd done for the other underrepresented groups, especially people of color. I, it was a uh, man. It was it was tough, and and it should have been. It's like a frying pan of the head that I deserved, and and I it still hurts. And it should it's a wake up call. Yeah, it's, and it's a good one, and I and I never stop. And so so I'd say that was the hardest one. The the other thing was you know hey we have systemic racism in Logitech, we have systemic racism everywhere. Biases. I don't want you to find any company where there isn't systemic racism. It's there everywhere. And by the way, not just systemic racism, systemic gender bias, systemic age bias, systemic 
disability bias. It's everywhere. And so you've got to admit that to yourself and then start rooting it out. I can tell you, I'll give you examples where it is in art. We used to have, when we put out a, um, uh, you know, we do a job description. We would ask for, you know, for a, for a director of engineering, we'd ask for, you know, 10 years experience and, and a master's degree, you know, well, guess what those people look like on average, you know, yep. we know they, like. they, can, they can do the job. They're the only ones who can do the job that for director of engineering. No. So we got rid of that. We got rid of the age. We got rid of the number of years experience. We got rid of the, the, uh, the college degrees. And we said, let's focus on what people have done that proves they can do the job, you know, but these are, they're all over the place. These, these things are, you don't even think about it. They seem so fair on, on the surface, but they're not. And it's really about putting it top of mind. So let's continue down this path and let's talk about, you know, hiring. And I love to ask executives like yourself. So, so by the time a, a candidate and we're talking senior level folks come to you and they come to your desk for the interview, do you have a couple of go-to questions that really help you quickly? Listen, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Character is something you learn about somebody over time. It's it's you may have a gut instinct and feel about someone initially, but my opinion, character takes time, and you really see that over a period. But you would need to make a hiring decision. So when you're interviewing folks, you have a couple of go-to questions that are kind of like patented Brack and Daryl go-tos uh, to really dig into understanding who a person is, what their why is, and what their how is. No, I don't. I, I <laughs> the short answer is no. Great, no groundbreaking stuff here, folks. For anybody interviewing with Bracken. No, you know, I'm not going to surprise <laughs> you in an interview. I, I, I don't. And I think the more reliable thing than that is make sure you've got other people that you really trust talking to these people. Just a second, sorry. Consensus. You know, it, not even consensus, just getting different different angles f- from people because we're all different. And, you know, as you as you go in and you, you un, as you call it, unpack people's personal lives and maybe not too personal, but their, their work lives, you learn different things from different people. And I, I have found that, that the uh, having a very small group of people interview people and then regroup afterward and really listening to what they have to say has stopped me from hiring mistakes more often hmm. than my own, my own interview. I, my own interview is usually kind of black and white. I mean, it's usually really obvious to me when somebody works and a really obvious one they probably won't. But it's the, the nuanced one. The tough ones are the gray areas where you kind of think, wow, I love this person. And then somebody else says, yeah, but. And you're like, wow. Okay. And so I'd say, I don't have a specific question that I would say, I'd say really trying to get at a person's values. It's really hard because everybody believes in, you know, all the good things when they're in an interview. So trying to get at somebody's values is good. And, and probably the best way to do that is to understand kind of what they think about these big issues of the day. If you can, you don't want to get too into things that are politically sensitive, but you know, really understanding where they come from on, on their values. And, and then the most important factor to me, period, no matter how you ask it to try to get it is drive, you know, does a person have drive? Yeah, you can't you can't make up you can't make up driving you can't fake drive. Um, in, inter, interesting there. You know, another big buzzword over the last couple of years is is culture, and you know, culture in my opinion, you know, starts and stops at the top. How do you how do you define culture in, in your organization, and and what does that really mean? I mean, culture is not you know ping pong tables and cold brew on tap. What's your take on culture? Well, I um, of course, Russell, my head of people and culture, will will. Uh, from afar, she will throw something at me right now when she's listening. Um, so culture is super important. You know, that's the most important thing probably in a company, you know, in so many ways. And, and a lot of people said that it's not, that's not groundbreaking either. I think the thing that might be groundbreaking that you might be hearing for the first time here is that we've overdone it. You know, I think, um, 
our definition of cultures have gotten tighter and tighter and we look for cultural fit with such aggressiveness and, and clarity and lots of questions and thoughts and surveys. And I think in the end, what we've managed to do is we've, we've, we've done a good job of getting a very narrow view of what cultures are. And unfortunately, we sacrifice something much more important, which is the individual. An individual passion is more powerful than a culture can ever be. If you can create a culture that unle- unleashes people individual pa- people's individual passion, that's a culture worth having. And unfortunately, the way we sometimes go after culture with you know, you know things on the wall and lots of uh, lots of descriptions of what you need to be like if you work here, and and lots of discussion around how exclusionary they should be, we've managed to exclude something even more important, which is individuality. And there's right. nothing more important. Wow, that's a big one. I mean, my, my, my take on it, I look at culture as a, as a quilt. And if you think about the quilt, it's made up of different materials, different colors, different fabrics, like each that. individually unique, but you bring them all together and you pull the camera back and what do you have? You have a beautiful yeah, macrame like in front of you. And, and, and that's something I really have taken from all these conversations with senior leaders like yourself. So pivoting again, let's talk about something close to you, you know, life biosciences. How, how does one even begin to, to tackle a problem as big as aging? And what's your vision for that company that you're a board member of? Well, to me, the reason I got into this is because I, when I was growing up, you know, I'm, I love people and I, I want to, and my whole thing was always, has always been, I want to have a really powerful, positive impact on the world through other people and, and in general. And uh, I should have gone into medicine if I really thought about it, because that's a direct, you know, kind of. Well, there's well, details involved there, sir. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm detailing enough to go through that. But but I but I but I didn't. And the reason I didn't was because I didn't want to be in the business of fixing things. I wanted to be in the business of growing and creating things. And so I just felt like, you know, the way the medical profession works is it's, it's kind of patch and move on, you know. And, and so the more I thought about it over the years, the more I thought about that really what we should be doing is preventing things, you know. And, and really creating better, more higher performing people in general, able to perform at a, at a higher level and have that last longer by preventing all the things that can get in the way, like like cancer and heart disease and all the things that affect us. So so that's how I got into this interest in lifespan, and uh, which is really about um, replacing healthcare with something much more effective, which is uh, improving life all the time. And preventing the things that so proactive instead of reactive, super proactive, and and you know the whole medical system is set up the other way. You know, it's set up to. I mean, it's as if we, you know, you jump in your car every day and you wait till you run out of gas and then you call the doctor to come fix it. And you know that that's probably not the best way to do it. And so I think we're at the beginning of a revolution in healthcare that that is is just starting to be talked about, which is healthcare will become the lifespan care will be become the biggest industry in the world, much bigger than what healthcare is today. And it will replace healthcare. It's, it and it's, it's, it's time. It's time. It's ripe for disruption. It's, it's ripe for change. And it's so interesting. Through this show, I've had the opportunity to talk to a couple of innovators in the healthcare insurance space. Yeah. And it starts with, it's flipping it on its head and it starts with actually caring, empathy, actually caring about, they're not a customer, they're not a patient. You you don't think of them like that. And and that's revolutionary. So moving forward here, I want to talk a little bit about um, changing the way we work. I mean, we've all had to do that in the last couple of years and they call it, quote unquote, you know, the the future of work. How how do we really make, you know, our relationship with work as as mentally healthy as possible? You know, boundaries are coming down, especially working from home. People people think their their life's better, but all of a sudden you're accessible almost 24 seven. There's no boundaries between, you know, I always say like my boundary is if I'm working from home, those four seconds when I'm walking from my upstairs to my downstairs and the kids are waiting for dinner, that's not enough decompression time. Yeah. 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 You're so right. Well, I, 
I mean, I'll, 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 I'll jump to a slight tangent that's very related. Please. I think the most important part of this that companies need to realize, you know, and is that you're not really in the business. You're not just in the business of, uh, of whatever you think you are. You're in the business of helping people fulfill their passions, you know, or, or, or really have uh, have fun. You know, I love uh, Eric Ewan's description of their their purpose in life, which is to just enable people to, to, to be happy. You know, and he did, and he came up with that because he was unhappy in a, in a job before. I think in my case, I'm I I've always felt like you know, gosh, if you can help people find their passions, or if they have them, help them deliver them. That's there's almost nothing more powerful. And and if you could do that, uh, some, sometimes often they will fit inside the company somehow. So I really I'm increasingly encouraging everybody just bring your passions into the company. And it, you know, in some cases they don't belong here. So then don't work. You know, don't work. 14 hours a day, go home and enjoy your passions, go after them, pursue them. I just had a guy leave me because he created a, uh, a, 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 a baseball card, basketball card, uh, startup. And, uh, I love this guy. His name's John way. And he's, he just announced he's leaving and he's worked with us for a, for a while in customer service. He's a fantastic guy. And I, and I, but I, I couldn't possibly have tried to talk him out because he's so excited about it. You know, he's following his passion. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I want people to follow their passion. So, so that's kind of my, my general, most important and, thing. That. Then in terms of the, of the way of work, how do you make sure that people don't kill themselves and, and just work all the time and work too many hours, even if they have breaks in between we're all learning, you know, I think it's hard, you know, it's, it's, Working from home is wonderful in so many ways. It's also too easy to, to click on and off of the next call, you know, and not get up and walk around and connect with human beings in a physical way. Yeah, so I don't meant know, to work like that. No. I don't know the answer. That, this is a super exciting space, though. It, it is. And, and, and you touched on something which leads me to a natural progression here is talking about leadership for a moment. And I think you just had a great example of that. Creating an environment where you're actually genuinely happy and encourage if someone's leaving and you're, and you're, you're follow your passion yeah. and and that's, and that's what it truly, I mean, where, where do you think, and I'll spin it a different way. Cause I ask a lot of leaders, it's like spin it a different way. I mean, where do you think so many leaders are failing these days, especially in the last two years? Let's get real tactical. Well, I, I think Has there been uh, a failure of leadership. Uh, I mean, there's always, you know, you know, my, my, I don't use the word failure, so it's hard for me to think that way. But right. I think, I think the one thing that, that uh, most of us have learned and some of us haven't, I'd say two areas. One, if you're not a DEI activist and you're a CEO or a leader, it's time to get become one because it's so important for performance. It's also important because it's the right thing to do. So I'd say that's one where I think I think a lot of us who grew up like I did, you know, white man, you know, didn't it, it it's it, we're so privileged and we don't even completely digest it and even now you can't digest it because you lived in it i did i grew up with very little money does that mean i'm not privileged no not at all i'm not very super broke so so i think you know not enough of us have suggested that one yet i'd say that's one maybe the number one i'd put on the table for now just because i think it's easy to do something about you can become an expert you don't need to be the second the second one i would say is um you know i i think we've been we somehow Somehow, large corporate America slipped into the optimization mode and out of mm-hmm. the innovation mode. And they use the word innovation, but they're really just optimizing. And, and I think, you know, optimization is great. It can really drive amazing performance for years and years, but it's not the same as innovation. Innovation is the, the catalyst for real long-term growth, the thing that keeps you super inspiring to work for and, and creating all the time. And I think more and more companies are getting better and better at that. But I think that is, if you ask me, what's the one missing ingredient, too much uh, lean and six Sigma, not enough innovation and creation. 
Yeah, that's that's powerful here. So a couple of quick points I want to touch on before we bring it home. Uh, and one big takeaway, I mean, I have it in my notes here, but just from listening to you over the last 40 minutes, you're 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 a lifelong learner. I I I feel it, I sense it. I I mean, how I mean, how critically important is that to you to just always be a consistent learner in life? You know, I think there's a I'll I'll, I'll boil this down to a definition. You know, when you think about curiosity, if you ask, I'll bet you half the people on your podcast would say, what's what's one important attribute? If you gave them five, one of them would be curiosity for leaders. And being I inquisitive, for sure. Being inquisitive. So I think the reason curiosity is important is because it's about learning. And um, and learning, and to, so if you, if you step learning back to curiosity, curiosity is two things. It's wondering about something. And then it's acting to find out. And the acting to find out is just, it may be more important than the wondering, but they're both super important. So if you're, if you want to do one thing for yourself, cultivate your own curiosity, both the wonder and the action to find out. I love it. I, I am, I am as a, as a finder of talent professionally, I am drawn to people that are naturally inquisitive. That's what my clients look for me to find in other people as a top skill. Per- personally, I, I align close to people that are like me, always looking to see how things work. How do we get there? How do we figure this out? What's next? How did that operate? And it's just a mindset there. So Bracken, let's, let's, let's bring it home here. This show is my masterclass. And for everyone listening today, this has been a masterclass and I appreciate your time here. Let me ask you this. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you have ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? Uh, when I, before I joined Logitech, I saw, I met with my founder, my, uh, a founder of a company who named Sammy Seagal. <clears throat> and I, I asked him for advice going into this job. And he said, I'm not sure I'd take the job, but <laughs> since you already have, um, it looks like a really high risk thing. Um, he said, uh, he gave me some advice. And then I got up from the table. I was walking out. It was, I think it was breakfast. And he, and he said, he said, Hey, Bracken, one more thing. And then I turned around and he said, he said, remember, he's a founder, he's very successful billionaire. Now he, he looked me right in the eye and he said, you wash the windows and you clean the floors. And I, I got to the door, I, I nodded my head and smiled and I got to the door. I thought, I thought I knew what he was talking about. Then as I went down the stairs, by the time I got to the bottom of the stairs, I think I knew what he was talking about, which was, you know, not take everybody else's job, but own everything. Um, it doesn't mean you have to tell people what to do or monitor what they do. Own everything, feel that sense of ownership. You're never a victim of anything or anybody. You just feel the ownership. And I think that, that works at every level, in every part of your life, all the time, whether it's your relationships or your role in your company. Wherever you are, you own it. doesn't matter what caused problems around you. You own them. Huge. Massive. Would you say that there's one a professional accomplishment that's, you know, center on your mantle, one greatest professional accomplishment? You know, I'm so focused on the future that whatever it is, it's ahead of me. Yeah, that's, 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 that's tremendous there. And, and last but not least, you know, you look back on your life, you look back on your career and listen, we've all had our tough moments. We've all been down in the ship pit in life, personally and professionally. And those are the times when we really had to div- we have to dig down inside and harness that inner tenacity, that fire to drive us forward and to find that thing, that why in life that keeps us focused. And on the other side of it, where you are now running a tremendous company, leading people, innovating doing good for the the world, the planet on a micro and macro level, and most importantly, changing yourself inside. Bracadero, how do you keep yourself focused? What is your compass in life? What is your North Star? You know, I I have had, you know, in the last, you know, the last few months, I've had uh, personal challenges. And I, and, you know, it sort of reminded me again, 
you know, how hard your life, how hard everybody's life is, you know, and, and I, and my, my challenges have been so minor compared to so many. Um, but I always come back to the same thing, which is, you know, when I'm, when you're going through it, you know, I always think, and, and a friend of mine said this to me last night, you know, I feel so lucky to be alive and so lucky to be here, to be able to have tough experiences and then be able to try to turn them around or deal with them. And it's, you're, we're all so fortunate, you know, if we can just find a way to be uh, grateful, you know, that we're just, we just get this chance and then you get your mojo back and you're out to change the world again. That's big. Let's end it on that. And uh, Bracken, I want to thank you so much for your time. Hang with me for one moment here as uh, we sign off. I really hope that everybody listens back a couple of times. I mean, th there's so much freaking gold in the mountains right here in this podcast. This is this is this is one of the great ones, folks. And I greatly appreciate you and your time. Uh, for everyone, they could go check out Logitech. They got some great stuff. Where we are looking at you and and streaming through Logitech. It's it's my go-to right here. Fully support them. And Bracket, where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Uh, you know, probably just through LinkedIn, you know, and if you obviously if you want to look at our products, we've got 36 different categories now. It's just super exciting. But, but I'm not trying to sell our products. If you want to connect with me, you certainly can. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, and I'm I'm uh, I'm always looking for for new connections, new new places to learn, people to learn from. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Adam. It's been fun. Hang with me for one moment here. And everyone listening at home, you know where to find out more. Find it at thepodcast.com. Follow us on other social media channels. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another. Look out for the planet, right? Let's not forget about this planet here, right? We're taking care of each other. Take care of the planet at the same time. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepodcast.com.